right. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Once again, for the sake of the new folks, let me just review just quickly. We have been studying uh, John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are currently in chapter 17, which deals with Jesus' high priestly prayer, as some have called it. A prayer he prayed to his father on the night before his, uh, his crucifixion. A prayer uh, that he prayed with his disciples standing there listening. Why did he pray this very intimate prayer to his father in their presence? Well, I believe it was so that they would know and understand what was most important to him with regard to their welfare and the kingdom of God going forward. I think the big reason he prayed this prayer in their presence was because these were things he wanted to be the focus of their prayers for one another after he returned to the Father, and they continued to work at the kingdom in his absence. So this prayer is divided up into three main parts. First of all, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples, verses 6 through 19. And today we want to begin looking at the third part of Jesus' prayer, where Jesus prays for all believers, verses 20 to 26. So verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Let me stop there. Here the Lord Jesus turns his attention toward the future and begins to pray for all those who would be saved down through the history of the church including all of us who are his disciples today. Do you realize, the night before the cross, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. I mean, that's an awesome thing to think about. Of course, after he rose from the dead and ascended back into, the, into his Father's presence, he continues that ministry of prayer. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But just the idea that Jesus prayed for us that night is mind-boggling. And the first thing on his heart was unity. Again, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now, as we studied earlier in chapter 17, Jesus has already prayed for the unity of his disciples, those that had walked with him for the last three and a half years, especially those who were apostles that were with him that night, minus Judas, who was at that moment uh, carrying out his betrayal. But we studied this earlier, how he prayed for unity for those that were with him. In verse 11, it, we, uh, it says, Jesus speaking, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So guys, here Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his disciples in unity. Why was the unity of his disciples, then and now, so on his heart and mind that night? Well, because first of all, he knew that unity leads to joy, verse 13. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But more importantly, unity leads to victory. There is strength in numbers. Unity leads to victory. Jesus knew that, whereas division leads to strife and defeat. 
Guys, it's the devil's goal to create disunity and strife because he knows that they create division. And division will destroy families, churches, and even nations. Remember, we looked at Matthew 12, verse 25. You don't have to turn to these, but just reviewing a little bit, uh, where Jesus said, Matthew 12, verse 25, every kingdom, every nation divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house, and that would be a family, divided against itself will not stand. He said in Mark 3, verses 24 and 5, a kingdom, kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. As we said a few weeks ago, unity is of the Holy Spirit, whereas division is of the devil, whose main strategy, by the way, is divide and conquer. But notice, he can't conquer us until he first divides us. That's why unity was so important to Jesus on that night. He knew in a very short time he was going to be taken up from these men he had walked with physically for three and a half years. They would be taking over the work he had begun. And he was deeply concerned for their welfare going forward. And so he knew that if they were united, if they were one, if they were walking in the unity of the Spirit, they would be victorious. But if not, they would be divided and defeated. Guys, as we said a few weeks ago, unity is impossible without humility. Now you can go back to that message, May 1st, I believe it was, if you really want to get into this. I'll just condense it. Unity is impossible without humility. Humility is basically, in a sense, dying to self, putting others before yourself. If you do that, you're never going to be at odds with anybody because if they're odds, at odds with you, you just put them first and, and you know, forgive them. And, and, and it just, it, that's how you keep um, peace, really, in a marriage, in a family, in a church, right? I'll tell you this, though. Unity is listed in Galatians 5.23 as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Those fruits will not grow in our lives if we're walking in pride. Pride is the opposite of humility, right? Pride is the soil that chokes out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Humility is the soil that allows these fruits to grow. And humility is very important. Jesus Christ, it says, left his glory in heaven and humbled himself, became a man, uh, learned obedience uh, to his father, and died the death of, on the cross for our salvation. Again, the devil could never sow discord and division into a family or a church without pride. Again, pride is the opposite of humility. James warns us in James uh, chapter 3, verse 16. He said, where envy and self-seeking exist, let me paraphrase, where pride is present, confusion and every evil thing are there. Again, Unity leads to victory, whereas division leads to defeat, which is why God has such strong condemnations for those, uh, for those especially who sow discord and disunity in the church. For example, one of the seven sins God singles out and condemns in Proverbs 6.19, as sins, sins he especially hates, listen, is one who sows discord among brethren. Brethren. That's the, that's the devil's work. He wants to divide. He wants to sow discord. And when Christians participate, they're really, unbeknownst to themselves probably, they're working for the devil to destroy the very thing Jesus died for, his church, his bride. 
And conversely, because unity is essential for victory, and remember this, the victory we're talking about is victory over the devil. Uh, spiritual warfare, we've been hitting on this quite a bit in this chapter because that, in essence, is what Jesus was talking about. Yes, he wanted unity. Why? Because unity brings victory. He knew that they were about to face uh, an onslaught from the devil uh, that would go on you know, as long as the church was in existence. And Jesus wanted the church, his church, to be victorious. And so he condemns division and those who sow it. But conversely, he commends all those um, who are walking with him, all those he commends to um, promote unity in the body of Christ, to promote it. We looked at Ephesians 4, verse 3 a few weeks ago where Paul said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what God wants us to do, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Greek word for, um, for um, endeavoring uh, literally reads, or the Ephesians 4 verse 3 literally reads, being eager to maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit. And that verb is in the present participle, which means we must constantly be endeavoring to maintain this unity. Why? Because it's going to be constantly under attack from the devil. And that is why Jesus prayed to his Father for us on the night before his crucifixion, that we, as his people, would always walk in unity with each other. Again, verse 21, that they, all believers, down through the history of the church, may be one. Now, some argue that the Father hasn't answered the Son's prayer for unity because of all the different Protestant denominations that exist in the world, uh, which are all divided in what they believe. In fact, I've heard Catholic apologists uh, point to this as proof that, they, that the Protestant church isn't the true church, can't be the true church, and why, uh, excuse me, and why the unity in the Catholic church is proof that it and it alone is the one true church. Why? Because they maintain, they claim that their unity is the result of the Father answering the Son's prayer that he offered to the Father that night, which proves that they're the true church. Let me say this to you. Don't confuse forced uniformity with spiritual unity. Look, every cult in the world has forced Uniformity masquerading as spiritual unity. The cult demands absolute, unwavering, monolithic loyalty and uniformity to the doctrines of the group and the group's rules. But that isn't true spiritual unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. I was I did a little research uh, in preparation for the message because it reminded me of the Heaven's Gate cult. Remember the ones that thought that the mothership was coming behind the Hale-Bopp comet? And they had to release their spirits from these bodies, their bodies, so that they, the spirit, their spirits could rendezvous with the mothership and take them to their home world. Okay? We smile at that. Tragic. Tragic. And I was reading. I wanted to refresh my memory, so I pulled it up. This happened in March of 1997 where they committed suicide. But the night before, there's 39 people now, the night before they committed suicide, they all dressed in exactly the same clothes down to the same black and white Nike gym shoes. They went to the same restaurant. They ordered the exact same drink, all lemonade. They ordered the exact same food, salad, uh, turkey pot pie, exact same dessert. I think it was cheesecake with, 
with uh, strawberries or cherries on top. Then they went home, drank poison, and, and killed themselves. But this is the mind of a cult. There has to be absolute uniformity. Now, unbelievers might look at that and go, well, at least they had, they were, they were really united. Well, yeah, but it was a robotic kind of a, you know, again, uniformity. Don't mistake forced uniformity for spiritual unity. I was raised in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, I'm not saying they're a cult. I'm just saying, I believe they're a false religious system, but a cult denies the, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the divinity of Christ. The Catholic Church affirms both of those. They add to the gospel. Yes, Christ plus these works gets you into heaven. They're a false religious system, but not a true cult in a classic sense. But I was raised in the Catholic Church. I know how they are ironclad in what people can do. and It's just, to me, that's not unity of the Spirit. Just because you have a lot of rules and basically tell people if they don't conform, they're out. All right, so first of all, don't confuse forced uniformity with spiritual unity. Second, don't think that diversity of thought and belief automatically equals division. Look, unity and diversity are not mutually exclusive of one another. We, evan we evangelicals can differ on non-essential doctrines and still be in unity with each other when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. In other words, Christians can disagree over things like the timing of the rapture, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still around today? Uh, is the millennial kingdom something that's literal or allegorical? We can differ on these non-essential doctrines and still have spiritual unity with each other. One author uses George, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley as an example of this. He said, and I quote, Such a powerful evangelist was George Whitfield that 30,000 people would regularly attend his open-air meetings. So anointed and eloquent was, eloquent was he that history records many orators and actors would come just to watch him. John Wesley, a contemporary of Whitfield's, was also preaching to multitudes. Yet so diverse were, were the views of these two men uh, on certain doctrines that they took out advertisements in the newspapers explaining why they believed what they did and why they were right and the other was wrong. Would you like to see that? All right. People thought these men hated each other until one reporter asked Whitfield, tell me, Mr. Whitfield, do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? No, Whitfield answered. He paused and then said this, he's going to be so close to the throne and I'm going to be so far back, I don't expect to see him in heaven. The author concludes by saying, I like that. Here these, these guys had very different views doctrinally, very different flavors in ministry, but they had unity through love in their diversity. Another pastor author said, or put it this way, he said, despite their outward denominational differences, all true Christians are spiritually and positionally united in the body of Christ by regeneration and their belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture, 
provides them with practical unity with one another here on earth and in the local church. All those who savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are, are and he quotes Romans 12:5, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another, end quote. Folks, I hope you understand that that is one of the greatest truths ever revealed in the scriptures about the church, that we are a body. We are the body of Christ here on the earth. You know, so many people think of the church as an organization, but that is fundamentally incorrect. The scriptures teach the church isn't an organization. It teaches it's an organism, an organism. The greatest difference between an organism and an organization is that, well, one has life and the other does not. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, a corpse is organized. It has all the limbs in the right place. The bone structure is intact. All the organs are in the right spot and connected to the right things. Everything is there, but it's not alive. At this point, it's an organization, but it has ceased being an organism. The dictionary defines an organization as a structured system, but it defines an organism as a living system, end quote. So guys, again, the scriptures teach that the church isn't a dead organization, it's a living organism. We are the body of Christ. And what makes us alive is that Jesus, the Lord of life, has given us his life at the moment of salvation by imparting to us, each of us as believers, the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, 63? He said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But also think of the Holy Spirit as the central nervous system of the body, empowering and directing each of the individual members in service and obedience to the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to do the work Jesus has called each of us to do. And we each have a ministry. And you can read Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 15, where Paul talks about how that each of us has been placed in the body with a very specific calling and ministry. And we must all do our ministries for the body to be healthy, strong, and effective. The problem with the church today in so many quarters is you have a very small amount of people doing all the work. A lot of spectators. Not a lot of servants today. And that's to the body's detriment. Without the life, though, of the Spirit in the church, we would become a corpse, a dead organization, and not a living body. And again, unfortunately, this is the sad testimony of all too many so-called Christian churches today. They are dead. The Spirit is no longer among them if he was ever among them. They are apostate churches. How can you tell an apostate church? They don't believe in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. They deny the virgin birth. They deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny key doctrines of the Christian faith. But then they embrace all kinds of things that God has condemned. You know, abortion on demand, uh, the homosexual agenda, uh, all this wokeism that's destroying our nation and now the church. 
People that in churches that embrace ungodliness, things that God has condemned, are not the true body of Christ. And we see it everywhere. So guys, the prayer that Jesus prayed for his church was, was that it would walk in unity, yes, with one another, but also with him. If you walk in unity with God, you're going to walk in unity with each other. Again, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, and I are one, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Let me say it again. Spiritual unity can only come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit won't indwell a person until they are first born of the Spirit or born again, John 3. Well, hang on a second, we're going to go there. Um, but the Holy Spirit will not indwell somebody until they're first born of the Spirit. And a person is only born again or born of the Spirit through the Word of God when it's presented to them. The Gospel, right? Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, verse 17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing... By the word of God. Guys, through the centuries, all who have preached the true gospel have preached the apostles' word. Even as Jesus said in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the gospel. That's, of course, started with the apostles. It continues today through all of us. We, we, we continue in the apostles' doctrine, right? Acts 2, 42, right? They, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, the breaking of bread, and the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. Very simple formula for church life, by the way. All right? Very simple formula. Just a few key ingredients. And God does the rest, right? But we are continuing today in the apostles' doctrine. Ephesians 2, 20, the church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. That's just another way of saying the church was built on the word of God, New Testament doctrine, which the apostles and New Testament prophets gave to us, but primarily the, the apostles who received direct revelation, first of all, from Jesus, and then when he returned back to heaven, God continued to speak to them, like to Paul, who became Paul the apostle, right? Um my, my point is, we, there is no new truth. We, we, you know, there are some churches, and I've heard this, we need new revelation. Because the old stuff, that's, that's outdated. You know, we need something fresh and new. First of all, I, I remember reading somewhere in the Bible that God's word is timeless. You know, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just being a little too nitpicky. I don't know. This idea we need new doctrine, right? Uh, that, that, that is always a red flag the devil's talking. Our response should be, get thee behind me, Satan. That's just how it should be. We don't need any more, we, and God's not giving any new doctrine. I'm not saying he's not speaking to us individually about the things of our lives he wants us to do. He's not giving any more doctrine. That's done. We have all we need for life and godliness. 
Now we just need to pray that God will give us the grace to walk in it. Well, you can't walk it until you first know it. Get in the Word. Get in the Word, right? But turn to 1 Peter. We're talking about how that we are only born of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. The Gospel. Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's just pick it up in verse 23. Where Peter says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Jump down to verse 25. Now, this is the word which, which by the gospel was preached to you. This is the word that we are born again through. It's the word of God. It's the gospel primarily. Look, when Peter said that we were born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, guys. He has in mind the two births that Jesus talked about in John 3, if you turn there. I'm going to read this to you out of the NLT, but it's John 3, verses 1 to 6. You know it well. Where it starts out in verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, what do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Those words are so important to our faith and to people's understanding of what it means to get into heaven. I can't even overstate it. Listen, for a person to go to heaven, they must undergo two births, as Jesus said. One physical, born of water, right? You know, child is enclosed in a sack of water in the mother's womb. When the water bag breaks, the kid's coming, okay, as you moms well know. So there must be a physical birth and then a second spiritual birth. Jesus said, born of the Spirit, born of water and born of the Spirit. Guys, in physical conception, and, and this is what was the idea I'm sure Peter had in mind, but in physical conception, a man's seed is corruptible, it's perishable. And even if it fertilizes the egg and the child is born, that child's life is also subject to corruption and death. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. In Adam, all what? All die. However, when it comes to the new birth, the seed is God's word, the gospel. And when it is received into a person's heart, it gives birth to spiritual life. Spiritual life, which will never be corrupted, never subject to death, as Paul went on to say, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And, John, and Jesus himself said to Martha in John 11, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, he wasn't talking about physically. He was talking about spiritually. But again, and let's finish, because this is just too big a section to conquer, uh, to take all in one sitting, but uh, again, back in John 17. So again, verse 20, I do not 
pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, and I are one, and as, um, that they all may be one as you, Father, uh, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now listen, this last statement, very important. I want to just camp on it and close. But it has to be seen in the context of unity. Unity. The goal of Christianity is to reproduce. But that won't happen if we're not in unity with each other. Hold on to that, all right? Look, the love of God working through his people, and again, assuming that they are walking in unity with each other. Not a lot of infighting. The Corinthian church was a mess. They were saved. Uh, you know, Jesus called them brethren, said that all the gifts of the Spirit were in operation in their fellowship. These are things that are said only of believing churches. But they were a mess. Why? Because they were acting like babies, carnal, uh, fighting. And Paul said, aren't you acting like mere men and not as Spirit-filled believers? A church can be carnal and still be saved. But that's not the goal. Okay, not to see how carnal you can get before, you know, it's to see how you can become more and more like Jesus. But um, when a church is spirit-filled, walking in unity, guys, that is the greatest testimony to the world that we belong to Jesus, that he is God Almighty. How does he show that? By changing people. Again, I've said this before. People can argue with your doctrine. They can't argue with a changed life. That's why let our light shine. The idea is live a changed life. Live a spirit-filled life. And the world itself will come to you many times and go, what is with you? Why are you so different? And you can share with them Jesus, how he has changed, transformed your life. And primarily, guys, and don't miss this, the transformation is on many different levels. But the main one is main one is that he transforms us from hatred to love. Now, for some people, they don't have those kind of strong feelings as others do. But there are many people who have hated people, gotten saved, and they've become these loving. That's quite a testimony, by the way. When your friends and family see you go from a guy that hates everybody can't wait to fight. You know, somebody says one word out of line, you're ready to go at it. So this beautiful, loving person, they might think you're nuts. As one famous evangelist said one time, because he used to walk around with a big cross, and, and of course people would stop. What, what are you doing? You know, Arthur Blessed, and nice name, and uh, he'd share the gospel. One time, some guy drove past him and said, "You're a nut." Yeah, but at least I'm screwed onto the right bolt. That's fine. If, if people don't think we're nuts, fine. At least we're screwed onto the right bolt. But this idea of Jesus transforming people from hatred to love, enemies to friends. Do you realize that Matthew, a Jew, worked for the Roman government? He was a tax collector. You know that one of the other apostles, Simon, called the zealot, he was a revolutionary that hated the Roman government and anyone who had any ties to the Roman government. They were the ones who were the assassins that would go through crowds on busy feast days and, and put knives into the backs of Roman soldiers. They hated Rome so much. 
I don't think we realize Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, came together as followers of Christ. Jesus Christ overcame that animosity and division. But look, when we talk about somebody who underwent a radical transformation, the more time he spent with Jesus, I kind of think the Apostle John would qualify as someone who had a pretty dramatic transforming experience as he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John is known, came to be known, not originally known. John came to be known as the Apostle of Love. Who? More than anyone else in the New Testament, except for Jesus Christ himself, spoke of love and exemplified love. In 1 John, why don't you turn to 1 John, look at chapter 2 real quick. But in 1 John, we get a feel for this man called the Apostle of Love. And just because he was loving doesn't mean he wasn't hard-hitting. If you love somebody, you'll tell them the truth, right? Even if it steps on toes. Because God's love wants to see people saved and being blessed as much as they can possibly be blessed. And that won't happen with sin. So John, the apostle of love, he cut it straight. He didn't mince his words. 1 John 2, verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Uh, John is saying to those in the church back then, let me paraphrase, okay? He's basically saying, if you say you're in the light, that you're a true Christian, but you have hatred in your heart for, uh, for other Christians, you're deceiving yourself. And you're still in darkness. You're still lost. If, if, if you are truly saved, uh, if, if you are truly saved, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, guess what? You can't hate the family of God. You just can't do it. This then becomes the litmus test that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holds up as the, as the determining factor as to whether or not a person is really a Christian. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now look, let me just say this. John isn't saying that a true Christian will never have conflict with another Christian. I mean, even families fight, right? Biological families. Even the family of God's going to have some conflict. What John is talking about is that those who say they're saved, and yet hate other Christians. Remember in the early church, you had Gentile and Jewish believers that still didn't feel connected. Um, all, the, all their lives, the Jews were taught to stay separate from Gentiles. And the Gentiles picked up on that and hated the Jews. So when the church first began, even though the apostle Paul said in Ephesians that, look, Jesus Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition separating Jew and Gentile and has made from the two one new man, thus causing peace. What was true theologically wasn't always the way it was practically in these local churches. Back then you had Jewish Christians that hated Gentile Christians still and vice versa. Just like in our country. 
uh, back, I don't know, maybe 70, 80 years ago in the Deep South. Uh, they said that 11 o'clock was the most segregated hour of the entire week because, you know, even though whites and blacks sometimes worked together, they didn't worship together in those days. Deep South. The blacks had their churches, whites had their churches, and often white Christians hated black Christians and vice versa. This is wrong. This is something that the Bible says, look, if you're a true child of God, this is a red flag that you your walk with Christ at very least is not what it should be, and at worst, you're not even saved. Look at 1 John 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's not, would you please, could you maybe? It's mandatory. It's, it, we don't have an, an option. Guys, the way our love for God is manifested is in how we treat each other. Anyone who says they love God and yet hates other Christians, regardless of what church they go to or denomination they belong to, is a liar and is deluding themselves. This is strong language coming from the apostle of love. But guys, listen, sometimes professing Christians need a kick in the pants instead of constant pats on the back. John's message, although hard for many to hear, listen, became the strong medicine needed to heal the division in the early church. A simple message, energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. A message the people of God needed to hear back then, still need to hear today. God wants us. He is commanding us to love one another. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. As Christians, God the Spirit lives inside of us, the Spirit of love. That is what spirit we are of. Remember, Jesus said that to John when they went to a village and the people didn't want them to come in. And so John and his brother James said, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven, burn them up? Jesus probably just looked at him, just stared for a second and said, you guys don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy life, he came to save life. No, we're not going to burn them up. Let's just go to a different village. Now, that was John in his early days, a son of thunder, right? At that time, he didn't really know what spirit he was of. He learned later on. Spirit of God, spirit of love. That's the spirit we are of, not the, the spirit of life, not death, of love, not hatred. And as we study John's life in the Gospels, we can see that this man who was who originally was called the son of thunder, how he became the apostle of love. Didn't start that way, as I just said. Um, he was not always a lover of men. Um, but as time went on and he hung out with Jesus, well, you can't hang out with Jesus in fellowship, in the word, in prayer, among other spirit-filled Christians, and not become more and more 
like Jesus, right? Isn't that the ministry of the Holy Spirit? 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Spirit of God is working for us, working in us more and more, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal, that we become more and more like Jesus on the earth. And as John spent time beholding Jesus, looking at Jesus, spending time with Jesus, he began to change. He began to change from a son of thunder, a hothead who wanted to wipe people out, to a man of love. A guy that went around saying little children love one another. You know, I, I imagine John in his early days wearing a leather biker jacket. Tough guy, you know, ready to go at it with you if you just crossed him a little bit. And then at the end of his life, this very incredibly loving guy, little children love one another. It's amazing, right? Um, let me just say this, as we bring this to a close. Remember the next time you're prone to think, I, I can't be a person who loves uh, somebody like that, the person who's hurt me. i just not in my nature. Or I just can't forgive that person for what they did to me. I, I don't have the strength. Listen, the same Spirit of God who lived in John and changed John from the inside out, from a hot-headed son of thunder into somebody who went around saying, my little children love one another, is the same spirit that works in us. I mean, if the Holy Spirit could do that for John, he can and will do it for us if we're willing. That's the key, if we're willing. It won't happen overnight, that's true. But little by little, you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus. And guys... That was one of the reasons, I don't know if you remember this, it's been a long time since we first started John's Gospel. But that was one of the reasons we gave for studying the Gospel of John in the first place. So we could gaze at Jesus and learn from the love he showed others so that as we watch Jesus in operation, we would begin to see how God wants us to live towards others, especially our enemies. The goal is that we behold Jesus. And the more we behold him the more we are going to be made like him someone has said and i quote as great as it is to be a people who move in missions as wonderful as it is to be a people who study the word of god as powerful and great as it is to be a people who are flowing in the things of the spirit and as dynamic as it is to be doing the works of ministry the most important thing we can do above all is to demonstrate God's love to the people of this world, and it starts with the family of God. And then he goes on. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, by, all, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. By what, he asks. By your doctrine? No. By your understanding of church government? No. By your knowledge of the word? No. By your boldness in witnessing? No. The verse goes on. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have fervent love for one another. Guys, God's love is the basis of our unity. And our unity will reveal to the world that we belong to Jesus who has given us his life and transformed us from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me end by just saying this. This was Jesus' final request on the night before he died for every one of us. I mean, the next day he was going to face not only death on the cross, but the torture and agony of being tortured by the soldiers, beaten with 
a cat of nine tails, if you've ever studied what that's all about, it's horrific to think about. His final request before he died for every one of us was that we would be one with each other, that we would walk in unity, that we wouldn't let petty bickerings um, or anything else divide us from each other. Guys, that was his last request. Are we going to deny him that because of our pride and selfishness? I hope not. It's a question I'm going to keep asking myself every time I want to be selfish and walk in pride with somebody who's hurt me. But Jesus wanted me to forgive. He wanted me to love. If Jesus wants us to do it, I don't see who of us could say no. And it starts in our marriages, which is a whole different message, but one to think about. Unity starts with family, and family starts with marriage. And the devil wants to conquer and divide your marriage, excuse me, divide and conquer your marriage, so you can divide and conquer your family and your church and your nation. There's a lot going on. It's called spiritual warfare. Don't let the devil get a hold on your family because of these things. Pride and selfishness. God help us. God willing, we will continue next time in chapter 17. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would move in our midst in a very powerful way. That, Father, you would give to us a fresh outpouring of your spirit manifested in your love flowing in and through us to each other and then to the world around us, even to our enemies. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.